Now more than ever, we're completely obsessed with our bodies and the food that we're eating. The truth is that the majority of people would say they don't like the way they look. I know I've said that about myself many times throughout my life, but what might surprise you to learn is that there's a highly idealized view of health and body type, and that it's an expensive, classist system that only the privileged have access to. There's this definition or this window of appropriateness and attractiveness that most of us are trying to attain that is not healthy or attainable for the majority of the population. And the way that I often um, get people to really take that in is just understanding that there's a social privilege associated with maintaining that ideal body type and shape. And it's a privilege and their social status associated with it because it is by definition difficult to achieve, right? Like if everybody could be that size and shape, it would stop being, it would stop holding status. I'm chatting with Dr. Jillian Murphy about what social privilege has to do with our health and how we can start making peace with our bodies. You're listening to The Courage Cast, a show to equip and empower women to live bravely. Each week we'll share coaching conversations and stories of women who are willing to face their fear and pursue their purpose. Here's your host, life coach, author, and your secret weapon. Hey friends, thanks for joining me today on the Courage Cast. I'm really excited about today's episode. I think we can all say that the past couple of months have been particularly hard on each and every one of us with COVID-19. And just when it seemed like life was going to resume to some semblance of normal, it took a very different turn with the murder of George Floyd. It forced the world out of a state of complacency and complicity to the racial divide, not only in America, but in Canada and around the world. And I found myself reading and educating myself about black history more than ever before. And to be honest, I realized that I had had my head buried in the sand when it came to the complexity of racism in the world. Something that was highlighted to me that was a huge disparity when it comes to status and privilege is our health and our bodies. And I was reminded of a conversation that I'd had about a year ago with Dr. Jillian Murphy, where she addressed these issues alongside things like intuitive eating and body confidence. On a personal note, I've been struggling with everything that has been going on in the world. And that led straight to emotional eating. Yep, I'm pretty sure I was having some sort of sweet every single day. My favorite is ice cream. So, you know, that kind of packs on the pounds after a while. And the more I was eating, the worse I started to feel about myself. And the guilt started just to mount on me, especially because I had worked so hard this year to lose weight. And now here I am struggling to fit into the jeans I fit into just a a few short months ago. Now I'll talk a little bit more about that later in the show, and I'm going to share with you how I'm dealing with that now. But I'm really excited to replay this conversation from last year with Dr. Jillian Murphy because she's an expert at helping people make peace with food and movement, even during the most challenging times. Dr. Jillian created the Food Freedom Body Love Method to teach individuals impacted by diet culture to get out of the cycle. So here is my conversation with Dr. Jillian Murphy. Jillian, I am so thankful that you are 
here today. Welcome to the Courage Cast. I'm pretty sure this is my very first conversation with a doctor. So Dr. Jillian Murphy, ND, thank you so much for being on the show today. I am equally excited. Thank you for having me. And I'm really excited about what our conversation is going to be about today because we have had a little bit of a preliminary chat. And honestly, we had 15 minutes scheduled and I think we went like (laughs) over an hour. We probably could have literally recorded that um, as an episode because it was so good. And I learned so many things. I took all these notes and um, I'm really excited about um, chatting with you about our bodies and food and health and um, all all sorts of things. But I, I just want you to first share with us, what are you passionate about? Just tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of what drives you. Sure. So I'm, I'll talk about my work in a minute, but I want to lead with some other things. I mean, I'm passionate about my kids and my husband, my family. I'm passionate about travel. I am passionate about dance, which is like really funny for me to say because I was never a dancer growing up. But it's this like interesting thing that I found as an adult that I'm a little bit obsessed with. And I dance as many hours a week as I can at a local dance studio where my kids go. Mm -hmm. Uh, Did I say travel? I love travel. My kids, my husband and I were big travelers. And I am passionate about helping out as well. So I'm one of those people that I get a lot. It's a pretty selfish thing, but I get a lot out of volunteering at the kids' school and the dance studio and the local community center. So I do a lot of that um, that work on the side. And then my work is a huge passion. It's like my third baby, really. And the work that I'm most passionate about, although I love naturopathic medicine in general, is the focus of my practice right now, which is helping people, women, some men, and children make peace with food in their bodies. So be competent, joyful eaters who feel comfortable in their own skin. Jillian, tell me a little bit about what started you on this journey. I think as with many people who do helping work, I got into it because I needed it for myself. And so I, in my early 20s, which is, I'm coming up on 40 in a couple of months here, so almost 20 years ago in my early 20s, um, I got interested in naturopathic medicine and as a byproduct of getting interested in naturopathic medicine, because I always thought I would go to medical school. Um, and I went to, I moved to Europe partway through my undergrad and I got introduced to this whole idea of like food and herbs and and taking care of our own health and managing our health for ourselves and the healing power of the body. And so I became interested in food and health food. And this was way before there was a clean eating movement, the way that we know it and understand it today. Like no one had heard of a trans fat. No one cared about sugar. You know, it was just very much a different food and health landscape at that time. But I was into it. And at first it was pretty innocent. Like it was I was just genuinely interested in what food did to the body and eating a little bit better. And at the same time, I was a a university soccer player and the soccer team just sort of had some stuff going on. And I left the team and I started running and I became a cross country runner through that period. And so this combination of running and being ever so slightly more interested in eating healthier 
resulted in a tiny bit of weight loss. And I can't, I don't know because I was never somebody who weighed myself. I didn't have a scale at the house at that point. I don't exactly know what I would have lost, but I was a pretty average if athletic sized woman. Um, So I lost a little bit of weight, but what happened was there was this enormous amount of reaction to that weight loss, which was like, I am so proud of you. Or like, you look incredible. Mm -hmm. And it just brought up these really weird feelings of like, what did I look like before? You know, I didn't Mm -hmm. ever, like, I didn't ever feel like I was a supermodel, but I felt pretty good about myself. You know, I, it's not like diet culture hadn't affected me. I grew up in the eighties. So I was like, well aware of of thin is better. And there's a specific body type that's ideal. And I like knew I didn't have it, but I also felt good about my own body. And I wasn't actively trying to do anything to alter my body. But from that moment on, it became something that was heavily on my radar. And so it became a source of anxiety and fear. Like what, how do I not go back to whatever, I don't know, monster I was before. (laughs) And that anxiety. And probably I think there was also just some general like growing up anxiety that was happening, um, got translated into becoming more and more obsessed with healthy eating. And there wasn't a term for it at the time, but there is now it's called orthorexia. And it was tough because I knew that it didn't feel good. And so I sought out help fairly quickly. I didn't go too far down the hole because I was like, Hmm, I don't really think I want to live my life like this, obsessing about food and weight all day. But when I went to um, the eating disorder specialist on campus, like I didn't fit the boxes, right? Because I was still eating, even though I was underweight. And I, and I just didn't exhibit all of the symptoms of a classic sort of restrictive eating disorder at that time. I went to um, the doctor on campus Um, who was just like this older male that was like, you're great. You're just healthy, Um, which I knew I wasn't, but I just wasn't getting anywhere. Okay. Let me ask you like quick interjection. So this, this doctor said you're healthy. What did that, what did he mean by that? Or what did you take by that? Well, that's a great question. I took that he wasn't taking me seriously by that because what I went in to talk to him about was the fact that I didn't have a period, which is actually one of the symptoms of a highly restrictive eating disorder. And I was actually going to ask for a bone scan because I was aware that um, when you don't have a period, it affects your bone density, which I became mm-hmm. worried about as I was trying to work my way out of this. And he was just quite dismissive and was like trying to put me on the birth control pill, which I did not want to be on. Mm-hmm. So he didn't do blood work. He didn't check anything. He didn't follow up on anything that I was asking about. He didn't refer me anywhere. And so I, even then was like, okay, I'm not okay. I'm not healthy. And I just, I just understood that I was being dismissed in that moment. And I was also pretty clear that I was going to have to work my, my way out of this by myself, Mm -hmm. which I did for the most part. Like I would say I got to what I call like normal acceptable amounts of body dissatisfaction and food issue which is like i wasn't restricting myself reg- like on a regular basis it wasn't eating up 90% of my brain space every single day i wasn't obsessive and yet i still didn't think my body was great i was still cycling through health 
eating plans, you know, they were always for health, but really at the root of it, it was to just manage my body on some level. Um, and just kind of cycling through the year, you know, before Christmas, after Christmas, before March break, after March break, but you know, before holidays, before the summer, like, you know, kind of buying into that whole, like, it's almost beach body season. It's, Mm -hmm. it's time to get, it's time to get your body in order. And then it not really working out and me being aware that I never really wanted to go back on a quote unquote diet. Um, but it's still, it was still there. So like I would get photos back from a photographer and I would pull them apart and I wouldn't be happy with them. You know, like it was still like this, I, I, I joke, but it, but I feel like it's not that funny. This normal level of sort of constant body dissatisfaction was still there. And I did that over a period of probably eight years or seven years. And there was different iterations, right? Like as with healing from anything, there were lots of moments where I was like, I think I'm way better. And then I would hit a new level and I'd be like, oh my God, no, this is way better. Um, And it was tough because I was doing it while I was in naturopathic school where there was a lot of focus on food and weight for health. And I took a year off in that program as well because I needed to in this personal healing process of myself. And I... I moved to England where my, my boyfriend now husband was living and I used that opportunity to stop running and really start to repair my relationship with food. But I gained some weight over that year, like weight that I needed to gain. But when I got back to naturopathic school, the, the amount of comments on my weight gain. And again, when I look back on it now, I was a very normal size. Um, Mm. but it was, it was pretty intense for a few weeks like this, like, you know, are you pregnant? Um, what's happened to you sort of. Mm-hmm. So your weight gain, which at the time you, you probably were at a, what they would term healthy mm-hmm. weight level. You, you gained, you know, to that amount and people still assumed there was something like changed in your body. So, which is yeah. crazy to me. Yeah. Well, for me, what it highlights is this like really small window of appropriateness is what I call it for women. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah, okay. like it's small, you know, it's like, if you're too big, then there's something going on with you, whether it's your health or your lifestyle habits or whatever. And then if you're too small, you start to get a similar kind of backlash about your body. And there's this like very tiny window when people are praising you <laughs> without a lot of backlash, you know? And I just, mm-hmm. it, it really highlighted for me, that it was going to be a challenge to ever live in that window. You know, okay, this is interesting because I think as women, you're right. There is at either end of the spectrum, there is this dissatisfaction with what our body looks like, how much we weigh, what we look like in a pair of jeans, all of these things. And then you said like there is a small window of, you know, I don't know, whatever body shape type weight that um, is deemed acceptable and to attractive. Be. Right, right. Yeah. And really, there's probably very, very few people who fit into that. And even still are probably unhealthy trying to do so. Absolutely. So it's like that window is actually too small, first of mm. all, to be healthy and attainable for most. And that has been proven by years of research, like years and years, decades of research that, you know, when it comes to the BMI skill, that it's actually much too low for most people. Um, and I'm not really sure what the second part that I was gonna say there was, but I think that the big the big thing to understand is that where that body and beauty ideal came from 
was not from health. It was coming from, there was a lot of factors that played into the development of the thin body ideal, but mm. little to none of it was about health. It was sort of like late 1880s, early 1900s, like 1910, 1920s, where there was this big shift in what was considered desirable about bodies. And there were political factors, economic factors, race factors, class factors, um, very little of it actually has to do with health, right? And so there's this definition or this window of appropriateness and attractiveness that most of us are trying to attain that is not healthy or attainable for the majority of the population. And the way that I often um, get people to really take that in is just understanding that there's a social privilege associated with maintaining that ideal body type and shape. And mm -hmm. it's a privilege and there's social status associated with it because it is by definition difficult to achieve, right? Like if everybody could be that size and shape, it would stop being, it would stop holding status. Mm -hmm. It would just be another ordinary thing. And then we would move on to the next difficult, challenging thing, right? Right. Absolutely. And so that helps like, people get it, right? Like there are some people for sure, I never want, you know, there are people that do fit into that window, absolutely. And they don't have to work hard and there's no collateral damage and it's just who they are. But that's a small percentage and almost everyone else is having to suffer on some level, whether it's mentally and emotionally, like giving up all of their time and creativity and brain space in order to be able to get into it or physically suffering to get into it, like starving themselves to get into it. Um, yeah. You know, I, I'm interested in this whole social privilege thing, which I'd never heard of until you had mentioned it to me and how, well, in this way, you know, right. when it and comes to our bodies. Um, but it's, it's very fascinating to me because when I really think about it, you know, anyone who probably does um, have that status or social privilege is able to hire, you know, people to help them to get to a um, certain body type, ideal weight. Mm -hmm. And there are many other people who obviously can't afford that. Right. Or can't afford to spend the time doing it. Right, right. Because they're busy working or yeah. doing other things. And I'm not saying that um, people aren't working because I know um, of actors who have spent, they spend hours and hours in the gym preparing for a certain role. Absolutely. And yeah. they, you know, order certain food and um, they can't go to restaurants because um, their food has to be exactly what they need it to be in order um, for them to have this ideal weight for the role. Or, you know, when you're talking about, you know, athletes um, similarly are not, you know, doing that. And for them, it's a different goal. And I think the goals can be very different. Totally. Yeah. But um, it's almost like a full-time job. Right. And the issue isn't that you, that there aren't certain people out there who can make those choices and enjoy the privilege that they have. The issue is when it becomes um, expected. So it should be easy. So when the message isn't, hey, look, this is something that these people are doing because they're, you know, a high level athlete and they have the means and the space and the resources, whether that's time, energy, money, um, emotional bandwidth, in order to be able to um, even think about these things or consider them. Um, 
there's one thing to be able to recognize that and be like, that's a, that's a, a highly privileged, idealized thing to be able to get to do. And there's another thing to then trickle that down to the general population and be like, that's what health is, which is the issue that we're seeing today is that that kind of a um, expensive classist system is being recommended to all as the ideal and the way to get healthy when we know that there are much more moderate ways to live a really healthy, fulfilling life um, when you don't have to be obsessed with food in your body at all times. Mm. Now, I'm going to be really honest with you because it, this is just a literal example of my life, like right now. Yeah. I'm going to be getting some photos taken next week. And the only thing that has been going through my mind has been, okay, make sure that you cut out all of the bad things that you normally eat so that your face slims down slightly. Mm-hmm. Like it's this like thing in my mind mm-hmm. that has been kind of this constant on loop. And I have put off doing it because <laughs> yes. I am not the size I want to be. And because when I get pictures back, I'm like, oh, this is not what I want to look like. And in fact, I've, I've put off even getting pictures redone for my website because when I had my re- website done a couple of years ago, I was smaller. Right. And this weird body image thing, like, you know, and the reason I'm bringing it up is because I feel like I think we need to like put a person to this, like um, this stigma and and how we all struggle with this. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's really key. And I think what's interesting about that is also understanding, because I think that there's some confusion as well around like body image issues versus the body positivity movement. I think that these things get really mixed up today. And I think it's important to, um, or it's interesting to put some faces to it so that we can understand how, when I talk about that idea of like an a window of appropriateness or desirability for a female body. And just, just, I mean, I, I want to be clear also that I work mostly with women currently and mm. those who identify as women. And so I use that term a lot, but I work with men too. And, and it's a growing issue in men. So I don't want to say that it's not happening for them because it is, but I just sometimes use women because that's who I see mostly. Um, but there is this window of appropriateness, but when we start to put faces to it, what's interesting is we start to be able to see how this system and structure fails women and how it fails women who are increasingly further away from the ideal, especially if they're going in the direction of more plus sized, more fat on their body, heavier. The, mm-hmm. the stigmatization that you're talking about grows exponentially and it's well-documented. It's well-documented in the medical system, in the workforce, it's a well understood thing that it's not like body image issues are about um i don't like the way that i look i'm struggling with the way that i look the body positivity movement was designed for those who are in intensely marginalized bodies where it's not just them struggling with the way that they look it's our current culture struggling with the way that they look and so the difference is basically like with a body image issue, kind of like what you're describing and really where I am as well. Like I'm in a medium sized white, able, 
cisgendered heterosexual body. Mm-hmm. And so when I was at that, you know, I kind of feel like you're describing that like normal level of acceptableness. Of, mm-hmm. uh, sorry, sorry, normal level of body dissatisfaction that so many women live in kind of for most of their lives where it's like, I'm not the worst, but like, I'm going to diet before every single major event in my life and put things off until I look a certain way and like, you know, feel a little bit in lack in some way when it comes to my looks. 100%. And when you were saying that earlier, like when you talked about, I was like, oh God, I just like <laughs> wanted to put my head down because I was like, oh, yeah, I do that. I was like, I really actually do that. Okay, sorry. But, right, no, that's okay. But the difference Continue is on. like if you and I work together, because this is the mm-hmm. work that I do, I, I, I know you and I know what you look like. And if you healed up some of these body image issues, number one, it's going to be a bit easier for you. It just will mm-hmm. be. It was easier for me. And the world will reflect back to you how much better you feel about yourself, right? Mm. Whereas, and don't get me wrong, again, I'm in a medium-sized body, so I sometimes talk about medium-sized problems. Like, I'm not, I'm not thin, but I'm also not highly marginalized. So there's a middle point there, which we can talk about because I think that um, medium-sized women kind of get a little bit forgotten in all of this, which, you know, fine. But with the body positivity movement trying to represent highly marginalized bodies, what they're trying to help people understand is, you know, it's harder to make peace with your body. It's harder to let go of the cultural storyline. And even if those individuals manage to do it, which is hard friggin' work, mm-hmm. the world doesn't reflect it back to them. You know, mm-hmm. like they can be, I have worked with so many women who do move their bodies and do eat well and are taking care of themselves and their weight doesn't shift down. And what the world reflects back to them constantly is you're not fit and you don't take care of yourself and you're kind of lazy and there's lots of judgment. And if they go to the doctor, the first thing is always just lose weight, take better care of yourself. You know, there's these things that happen to those that live in more highly marginalized bodies that they can't just fix for themselves. Mm -hmm. So there's like two layers here, right? There's like on an individual level, healing up our own body image and then on a grander scale, it's like, how do we start to shift the systems and structures in, that are in place that, number one, caused the body image issues that we're having, and then number two, are increasingly damaging and detrimental for those who are further away from mm-hmm. the ideal that's been set up? No, there's probably people listening that would say, okay, now if you get to a level of body weight or BMI that is larger or higher and you know you're putting your health at risk Mm -hmm. and so we're talking about this you know body image also the body positivity movement and it's like okay at at what point does one cross over into the other and you know because like if you have a fitness expert Oh, yeah. And I don't know every fitness expert, so I'm not like putting them all into one pile. (laughs) But say, just for the sake of the conversation, that a fitness expert is like, oh my gosh, no, this is terrible. Like everybody needs to be at this BMI and that's the way you need to be healthy and blah, blah, blah. You know, what what do you say to that? Okay. I've got so much to say because really (laughs) the core... The core of the work that I do is separating weight and health because they need Mm -hmm. to be separated. They've been inappropriately tangled. And that doesn't mean that they don't 
ever affect each other. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that they've been inappropriately tangled up in such a way that we think that we can't pursue one without the other. Like you can't pursue being healthy unless you are pursuing weight loss. And -hmm. pursuing weight loss equals pursuing health. And my argument, and I'll back it up in a sec here, but my argument is that intentional weight loss like pursuing intentional weight loss is not a health promoting strategy. So that's where I'm separating them. And the reason for that is this, it has been very well established in the literature that weight loss, as we understand it today, like dieting, whether that's reducing calories or changing the foods that you eat and cutting things out and exercising to lose weight is ineffective for 90 to 95% of people. This is like long-term, which is one to three years. And so I was just reading a study the other day, full meta-analysis of like the research that we currently have. So it fails. And even those people that seem to be maintaining weight loss, what they tend to be doing is actually weight cycling, which is like yo-yo dieting, because the reality is that most people can't stay on for very clear physiological reasons. They can't stay on the restrictive diets and exercise plans long-term. And so even the people that sort of appear to be maintaining weight loss, when they study them, what they show is that they're, um, by the fourth year, by the third year, fourth year, they're weight cycling. So their weight goes up and then they diet themselves down. And I just quickly want to say, it's a little bit of an aside, but weight cycling is being shown to be more detrimental to health than even carrying extra weight. Like it's, it's Mm. a bad, stressful, difficult thing on our body. So if we understand that pursuing intentional weight loss fails, 90 to 95% of the time. And then if we also begin to understand that there is a significant amount of collateral damage associated with dieting our bodies, which looks like becoming preoccupied with food, becoming reactive with food, so binge eating or emotional eating beyond what would be considered normal, having our weight actually go up, not down. So in this weight cycling that people engage in, their set point tends to go up, not down. And again, I'm not pathologizing someone in a bigger body, but I'm saying like, you're, you're essentially pushing your weight unnaturally up by doing this. Um, Okay. So by, by doing this yo-yo thing, cycling, like going up, then losing like, you know, five, 10 pounds, you know, 15, whatever, then in a year going back up, doing it again, you're actually pushing the number up. Yeah. And weight is complicated. So I never want to say that that's going to happen to every person because Mm -hmm. it doesn't. Some people can diet and weight cycle their whole lives and and their weight doesn't go up. But for many people, that is a result of ongoing Mm -hmm. yo-yo dieting is their their weight goes up. And so if if we see what we see is that um, weight started to go dramatically up in our population when first and foremost, BMI standards were set, bodies were defined as not okay or not right. And those BMI standards were initially set by actuaries, like from insurance companies, not health, the health professionals. And, and it's interesting to think about maybe how those things were set and how the standards that we currently have were set, because that's a whole other ball game. But basically bodies are defined as not okay or not healthy. And then there's strategies put in place, which is dieting to try to make the bodies okay or fit. And that is when we start to see an, a, a steep increase in weights culturally. Mm. So it's a, 
so there's collateral damage. And, and again, even more than that for me is this incredibly fractured relationship with food and movement that is a byproduct of this because what I often describe to women or the way that I explain it is like the, the day you decide to start dieting your body is the day that food and exercise stop being your friend. Like when you're a kid, hopefully, if you've escaped this as a child, because not all children have, I do work with children too, right? And this is a huge ongoing issue with kids, but food is nourishing and fun and life-giving and exciting. And so is movement, it's play. And the moment that you decide that you need to use those things to manage your body by like by pursuing weight loss is the moment that they stop being your friend and they start being tools of control, which are not effective. If we remember the research, they're not effective to begin with, but mm-hmm. they can also veer into like weapons that we use against ourselves. And so mm-hmm. we end up with a population that is not getting smaller, but is just increasingly disordered around food, more self-loathing, more eating disorders, more body image issues, and increasing stigma around those who aren't making it work, despite the fact that they're existing within a system that was never designed to work. And Mm -hmm. so the question is, well, there, you know, the weight inclusive wellness industry or the health at every size industry doesn't say weight and will never affect health. But what we're saying is weight affects health a lot less than we think, like a lot less. And there's just as many um, potential health effects from being underweight and from weight cycling as there is from being overweight. I'm using that term in quotations because I don't love it. Um, And that if we understand that weight loss is ineffective and that there's all this collateral damage, it doesn't matter what weight someone is, trying to force them to lose weight is not a health promoting strategy. But that doesn't mean that you can't encourage them to improve their health. This is where things get tangled, right? This is Mm -hmm. where the belief is that if you are not telling someone they have to lose weight, that you're ignoring their health, when I would argue the opposite. So I would argue that we can teach people to engage in health promoting behaviors in a much more sustainable and effective way when we stop trying to force weight loss. And I'll just say one more thing. I know I'm like going on, but this is big. And I feel like Mm -hmm. if you miss anything, um, people will just dismiss the concept completely. So I just want to say as well that psychologically pursuing weight loss and pursuing health are two totally different things. So this Mm -hmm. is the other big piece of the puzzle is that when you are pursuing weight loss, you are basically in a mode to ignore your body, to override it, right? To overcome hunger, to push down appetite, to ignore cravings, to not be attuned to when you necessarily need a rest day because you've got to stick with the exercise program. And it's not necessarily that overt, but that's really the underlying message is like, this is the plan, you need to stick with it. And any of the negative effects that you might be feeling, we're just going to justify it away as like no pain, no gain, on the way to getting your body where it needs to be. Mm-hmm. Whereas pursuing health is very much about understanding that our bodies have incredibly well-attuned regulatory systems and that those that don't mess with it and those that feed themselves well, meaning they listen to their hunger, they listen to full, they're not reactive with food, um, they move their bodies moderately, have very, very, very good health outcomes with any, without any of the collateral damage. Each and every one of us has our own story around our bodies and how we feel in them. 
Hearing Dr. Jillian talk about weight cycling got me right where it hurts. I'm pretty sure that I've been using food and exercise as punishment or reward for years. I mentioned earlier in the podcast that I've been emotional eating for the past few months. Well, actually more like the past few years. And a lot of the reason is that I feel completely out of control with what is happening in the world. And although deep down I know that I'm doing it, I can't seem to make myself stop. And if I'm being honest, I can trace this behavior back to when I was a kid, when I felt out of sorts with my body. I was the kid who dieted early on when the rest of the kids in my class were out enjoying life because I was worried about my weight. So can I just get real with you right now? I wanna get off the train and start looking at my body in a way that promotes healthy view of physicality because I know that so much of what our bodies are holding on to affects our soul and our spirit as well. And to me, that is more important than it has ever been before. We had talked before and kind of one of the themes that we're doing this season is body, soul, and spirit. And so we, you've been talking a lot about body and now we've kind of shifted to the whole soul, which is uh, mind, will, and emotions. Then of course we have the whole spirit component, which is a whole other third component. And when I started kind of my health journey, which I talk about on the podcast, which is um, really uh, working through depression and anxiety, um, part of that was really kind of focusing on my physical body, but also I knew that that wasn't going to be the only way to kind of combat what I was going through. It was also going to be the whole soul approach, like um, mind, will, and emotions, and how was I feeling, and getting to the root issues of, you know, what had kind of caused all of this to begin with, and um, kind of the thought patterns around it that had developed years past, and so on and so forth. Not to mention the fact that there was also depression in my family background. So it's kind of a generational thing as well. Mm -hmm. And now one of the things that I had done at the end stages, I didn't do this at the beginning, even though the girl I was working with had said this to me over and over and over again. She's like, I think you need to change what you're eating. And she's like, have you written down what you eat? And I'm like, oh, I'm fine. Like I eat fine. Like, you know, I don't eat too many calories and but I was thinking in like the terms of calories and in, right. in the diet sense, like in the um, this is what you should and shouldn't eat dieting mode versus like this is what would actually fuel your body if you ate it. Right. And you'd feel better and your body would respond with energy and you wouldn't, you know, and you would be like, oh, I'm and I remember when I started doing this Um it shifted everything. It it shifted how I felt, my energy levels. I no longer needed to have a nap in the afternoon because I wasn't needing one because I had the energy that I needed. And, and it was kind of the thing I had to work through. And it's still something I'm working through. I wouldn't say I'm there, but it was this moment of being okay, like 80% of the time, as long as I'm kind of functioning on this level and doing this, then 20% of the time I need ice cream and pizza. Mm -hmm. And things that I, you know, probably aren't going to make me feel as good. 
aren't, aren't going to be as you know good for not just my body, but just because I knew I wasn't actually at my best when I ate it. Yeah. And um, and so I want to talk to you a little bit about like how does um, our body our soul, which is our mind, will, and emotions, and our spirit, how do they play into it? You said the psychological effect. Yeah. Like, okay. I'm so excited. I love this question so much. And I think that um, it is interesting because we'll talk, I want to talk about intuitive eating because that's essentially what intuitive eating is, is mm-hmm. being in tune with your body and being able to take health information in, like ultimately at the end of the intuitive eating process, it's being able to take information in about health or food and try it on for size or decide what works for you and what doesn't and Mm -hmm. apply it to your life in a way that feels good. And then if you veer off of it, your body tells you and it talks to you and then you listen again. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you're kind of like, I'm not there yet. I'm still working on it 80%. I would say that that's pretty normal. Like normal eating is not, (laughs) it's not perfect eating. That's ridiculous. We don't, we're not perfect at anything. And yet in our culture, there is this constant ideal that eating should be perfect. We're not perfect Mm -hmm. at anything. Perfection has never led to a great quality of anything, you know, like the pursuit of perfection, as far as I know, right? It's like living in that happy medium where you're doing enough to feel really good. And then you have the flexibility and ease to just have fun and understand the the enormous mental emotional benefits of being able to just enjoy food sometimes mm-hmm. without it needing to be for your physical body and for a function because sometimes the function is pleasure that is the function and pleasure's also been intricately linked to um how we absorb nutrients interestingly so it's not even just for pleasure okay you have pleasure. to tell me you you have to you have to tell me that Okay. <laughs> like, okay. So I hope I, I hope I don't bung it up because I'm just I haven't read this study in a while. But I, but um, essentially there was a study done, and within the study there was Thai women and Swedish women, and I'm paraphrasing here, right? But mm-hmm. essentially what what they were looking at is foods that make us feel really happy and comfortable and good, and how much nutrient we absorb from that. And they were looking at iron, and so for the Thai women the meal was like. Um, like a tip, like rice and chicken, and it was like a, a vegetables. It was kind of spicy and a little bit sweet. And for the Swedish women, it was like I joke around. It was like an IKEA meal. It was like meatballs and potatoes and gravy. <laughs> and it was like more bland, right? Yeah. And so they fed the Thai women the Thai meal and measured their iron absorption. And then they fed them the Swedish meal and measured iron absorption. And then they did the same with Swedish women. And what they found was when they were eating the meal that was not as pleasurable to them, they absorbed something like 40% less iron from that meal. So a meal that was pleasurable and comfortable and enjoyable, they absorbed more iron from that meal. And when it was less so, when it was something they were not enjoying because it was too bland or it was too spicy or it was too whatever, they actually absorbed less iron. And then they went one step further with the Thai women and they actually like took the Thai meal and put it in a blender and blended it. So like thoroughly unenjoyable. So exact same nutrient profile, but they fed it to them in this like thoroughly unenjoyable state. And it was something like, again, I'm paraphrasing here, but something like 70% less iron absorption from the same meal in the same women because they, it was disgusting. Yeah. And so, and there's a few other examples of this, but just this idea that pleasure and comfort in our culture that's so focused on the physical body and like making the physical body optimal and like food is only fuel, they totally ignore 
that that pleasure and comfort play a very big role in this overall food body health relationship, right? Like it just totally mm-hmm. minimizes these really important aspects of eating, like like the social aspect and the cultural aspect. And another interesting example of this, which is a little bit different, but um, a study in the United States of a community of people that were from the Mediterranean and they just had these, like, they just had really great health outcomes. And so they decided that, it, that they would study them. And the philosophy was, well, they must be eating all, like they moved from the Mediterranean, but they must be maintaining all of those Mediterranean eating patterns in order to have such amazing health outcomes in this little town. And what they discovered was that wasn't true at all. They were eating American food. They were eating lard and they were eating fast food and they were eating these things. But what they had maintained from their country was the positive, the positive belief about food and this amazing like social connection to food. They ate together. Food was a good thing. Food was nourishing and delicious. It wasn't guilty or something to try to control or manage or hide from. And so they just, because our bodies have these amazing internal regulatory systems, they were regulating themselves because they had this amazing relationship with food. Mm -hmm. So I think that's just another sort of example, one of many, where there's just so much more to nourishing ourselves and to health than controlling our physical bodies. Mm -hmm. And so there was two things that I just wanted to say in that story that you told Mm -hmm. about working with the woman and cleaning up your diet that I thought was interesting. The first is that when she talked about changing up your food, because you were thinking in diet culture mode, you immediately assumed that that meant that you were kind of okay, right? Mm -hmm. So this Mm -hmm. is just a flip side of that coin of like, when we are in the psychology of weight loss and maintaining our bodies, we can really overlook some things that could be really good for our health because we're only looking at it from one specific angle. In this case, it was calories, right? Absolutely. The other thing is when you were saying that she had to sort of bring it up to you over and over and over again before you were ready for the information Mm -hmm. and understanding that those that have been engaged in diet mentality intensely or for very long periods of time often have such a fraught relationship with food that it's very difficult for them because they become so reactive or rebellious or unconscious with food because of the deprivation that they've put their body through, that they're often not initially ready to take on health. And that's another piece of the collateral damage of this diet culture, right? Is that they, there could be things that would be making them much healthier, but they're actually not in a space or a place mentally and emotionally to take that information on because their relationship with food has become so damaged. And to understand that that's not their fault. Like that's not their fault. That's not a willpower problem. That's like a self-preservation. Your body is doing exactly what it needs to do because it is scared you are going to starve it again. Like a fundamental understanding in this conversation is that dieting our bodies feels like starvation and famine to our physical body. And so it becomes, it goes into self-preservation mode and, and sometimes self-preservation isn't the prettiest, right? And so it can look like binge eating or quote unquote overeating, which I would argue is just normal eating in the face of food insecurity, like a fear mm-hmm. of not having enough. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, so- having, I'm having this like total shift right now as you're saying this. Yeah. 
um, because I, I, I'm imagining how it's almost like I the word punish comes to mind, like punishing my body by, you know, trying to diet, trying to, you know, keep it from eating certain things. Yeah. And it going into like, are you going to feed me? Because I really, <laughs> I'm hungry. Yeah. And and kind of losing that whole pleasure thing. Like I joke to my friends all the time because I don't like to cook. But I j- my joke is, you know, like I eat to live. Uh-huh. But this whole like pleasure and um, and this whole thing about like, you know, not like w- ultimately punishing my body for not looking the way I want it to look. Right. Right. Or not doing the thing I want it to do. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, okay, now you're going to go in timeout because you didn't do. And it's almost like then my body goes like, well, I don't know how to react to that. It, yeah. It, it, yeah. I mean, it's interesting because most people, when they first come to see me, um, mm. usually the presenting problem or issue or pain point is something to do with food, right? Like I'm trying to eat healthy and I can't stick with it. Or why do I keep overeating at night? Why am I such an emotional eater? Why is my appetite broken? Why do I binge eat? Like those are the pain points, right? That's the real life experience of the problem. Mm-hmm. And yet the truth of the matter is that that's just the symptom of the problem. That's your body reacting and trying to preserve itself in some way. And the actual problem is that you're trying to override who you are at the core. <laughs> like you're trying to say, my body's not right and my appetite's not right and it can't be trusted and I'm going to override you and I'm going to try to control you into the ground. And your body's basically just reacting and being like, nothing is more important to me than you surviving. And I don't mm-hmm. care how messy or unpretty it is. I will take over any, and, and the more people diet, which is interesting, the more people restrict, the more they diet, the harder they find it hmm. because their body gets better and better. Like it's like that like even perceived deprivation can start to trigger overeating and binge eating and emotional eating. Like, okay, I'm going to start a cleanse on Monday. And if it's for the wrong reason, if it's for intentional weight loss and deprivation, people will binge eat all weekend before it. Like it's actually when I'm working women out of diet mentality and into a better place with their body, there are these automatic tells as to how far through the process they are. Because if the mere thought of eating something quote unquote healthy, or that would have been part of a diet for them is still triggering them into a major reaction around food. We still have work to do with their Mm -hmm. relationship with their body and weight and where they're at. And that's okay. Like that's part of the process, but understanding that those reactions that we have are triggered by deprivation, whether we're physically depriving ourselves or we're planning to deprive ourselves or in our brain, we're depriving ourselves even when we're eating the food. Like we're eating it, but we're like, I shouldn't be eating this. I'm not going to eat this again. Starting Monday, I'll never do this. Like those are the kinds of thought patterns that continue to um, drive unhealthy negative behaviors with food. And again, those things are all born out of trying to manipulate our bodies. Mm -hmm. I don't want to say, I just want to say just as like a quick aside that there are many things that play into our relationship with food. And the three big things are this diet culture and the the trying to manipulate manipulate our bodies to meet the ideal. There's also mood, which you've also kind of identified and addressed. Mm-hmm. And then there's just like our personalities. Like there's certain people and personalities that are more prone to struggling with food. Um, and and my opinion is that the diet culture that we live in makes all of it worse. Like it amplifies it all. 
But I just want to highlight that there are some instances where people can be really struggling with food and their body because of a mood disorder, and it isn't necessarily because they've been dieting. Does that make sense? Yep, absolutely. Okay. So what you're saying also is that for everyone, the ideal, and I don't mean ideal in weight, but I mean ideal in their living situation and in their health, you know, for them healthy, um, mind, body, and spirit um, is different. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's one of the reasons that like diets fail is because they're plans that don't take into account the actual lived experience of the human, mm-hmm. of the individual. And that mm-hmm. some people have different mental, emotional needs than others. And some people have different physical needs than others. And part of weight inclusive wellness is respect for that diversity and respect for the diversity of barriers and um, the diversity of the lived human experience. Yeah. I had a friend who I used to work with and we used to joke about um, lunchtime because the culture of that work environment was very much that everyone brought their lunch into the staff lounge and ate together. And when I showed up, I would get my lunch and I'd bring it into my office and I'd work because as I had mentioned, I eat to live (laughs) yeah, and I've got stuff to do. And it's not like I don't take breaks because I take breaks, but I take them around things that I want to take them around. Yeah. Yeah. So to me, I was like, I'll eat in my office. I'll sacrifice that lunch hour time or, you know, like chatting with people. And instead I would go down to, we had a grand piano down um, in another level and I would go play the piano for half an hour because I would rather do that than go and eat in the lunchroom with everybody else. So the joke was eventually one of the girls called me out. She's like, why don't you eat with us? And I'm like, well, do I have to? Like, is it a thing? Like, do I have to eat with you? Um, and and I slowly started to realize, and, and, and as we've been talking even more so, the culture she was raised in and the culture she um, really thrived in all centered around food and around being together. Right. So that was a connection point for her. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And and so, you know, it was the enjoyment of food and the enjoyment of the company of the people you're with. Whereas for me, I think, you know, food for me was like, you know, I if I eat it, I'm going to get fat. I just want to kind of make sure that I'm eating the right things and then not really worry about it and do the things I need to do because I've got stuff I need to get accomplished and, you know, driven and goal oriented. Not like she wasn't because she was very much so. Of course. But in it, in it maybe a different capacity. And I'm starting to realize, even as we're talking about that shift of pleasure, that shift of culture, that shift of mindfulness around um, food and enjoyment and our bodies. Yeah. And I would, I mean, I love that. And I don't know, maybe if I'm saying the same thing, I'm just repeating it a little bit differently. But what I love about that is if we could take out, like, I don't believe like one of my core beliefs in this whole thing is not everyone needs to be obsessed with healthy eating. Like that's Mm -hmm. not a requirement for a long and good life. Like it's functional within our society for some people to be obsessed 
with like building buildings and some people to be obsessed with making music and some people to be obsessed with coding or whatever, you know, it's like part of the healthism culture that we live in is that everyone should be, should have healthy food on their brain all day long or like eating on their brain all day long. And it's just not that functional for everyone and it's not necessary for health. And so there are going to be people in the world who have more value around eating together and connection. I happen to be one of those people. Like I would sacrifice some of the, um, the knowledge that I have about what foods make me feel great and ideal. I would like let some of that go in order to have a really fun meal with people. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Whereas for other people, they're more functional eaters. They're like, I just want to feel good. I don't want to worry about this. Like I'll bring my own food or I just won't eat. Like to me, going to a big dinner with a whole bunch of people and not eating would be like not connecting. But for mm -hmm. other people, that's not really the case. And as long as it's, they're not doing it, as long as we can sift out the shame and the guilt and the control, and as long as it's not a disordered eating pattern, we should all be allowed to hold our own value around how much we care about healthy eating and and like not even healthy eating. I hate to say it like that because I feel like there's healthy eating is actually much broader than mm -hmm. what we, how we define it generally, but like, like optimal eating or like ideal eating, not everyone needs to care that much. And so the end point of the work that I do with women is actually, we work into gentle nutrition, which is like, what are your own values around food? And I would say that even the way you're describing it, I know from talking to you before that you do value connection to a certain extent with with going out with friends and, and having a uh, movie night or food. So you do value mm -hmm. it and it is an important part of your life, but there are just other things <laughs> that are equally important or more important at certain points in the day. Right. Mm -hmm. And those things are life giving to you. Like what is the point of health if it's not to just live the life you want to live? Right. Yeah. So for me, the end point of the work is once we've sifted out all of the coulds and the shoulds and the punishment that go along with intentional weight loss, we get to a point where ideally people are interacting with food and exercise in a joyful, easeful, flexible way that allows room for the things that they value in life and for the ways that they connect and allows their body to sit in a place that's sustainable and enjoyable and isn't directing their entire life. And I mean, that's the, that's the big goal. And so for some people, that means you eat lunch at your desk. I eat lunch at my desk, <laughs> mm -hmm. but, but that's just another outcropping of the diet culture. Like these kind of like sub diet books that are just about healthy eating where it's like, you have to eat slowly, no distractions, blah, blah, blah. It's like, those are sometimes techniques that I use to help women get back in touch with their bodies. Um, but once we're out of this cycle, I'm very in touch with my body and I occasionally eat in front of the computer, you know? Mm -hmm. Oh, like it, it, I feel like right now everything's kind of like opening up. I feel like you just gave me a coaching session. <laughs> so I'm like, should I actually I should you invoice me? Like, <laughs> um, but, and I think probably a lot of the listeners probably feel the exact same way. Um, you know, this whole, um, thought process around our bodies and around how we feel about them and how we enjoy them and the food that we eat and is is so fascinating to me 
and and so interesting. Um, one of the things I'm not sure we've really touched on is body knowing. Oh yeah, yeah. What what exactly is that, and how can we take practical steps to like take care of that? Well, in the way that I understand it and use it, it's like. I feel like Oprah described it ages ago on her show. I'm probably dating myself a little bit here, but like Mm -hmm. she would talk about when you go down that street and you get goosebumps or um, you make a decision and you get that feeling, that rush of relief that your whole Mm -hmm. body feels it. And it's this understanding that we believe that we make decisions because of logic and knowing in our brain, but really we make decisions quite emotionally from the gut or the heart center based on our values and and who we are as humans at our core. And then our brain sort of seeks to like make things logical, right? And and part of the issue with using our brains when it comes to food and movement and our bodies is that our, our brains have grown up in a diet culture in a thin is best, get your body to this point at all costs belief system. And so it's really difficult to start to shift from within your own brain. In fact, um, when people say, when they get to, when they start working with me, they often are at a point where they're like, I just don't know what to do anymore. Like, I can't even imagine that I can change this because I have no idea where to start. And I'm like, perfect. So you're at the end of believing that your brain is the source of all good information. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Great, great. So let's start listening to your body. And so it's going back to that idea that our body does have really beautifully regulated systems and our body is speaking to us all the time and it's giving us information, whether it's fatigue or aches and pains or hunger or full or fear or relief. And then we can start to tune into that and we can actually start to listen when our brain is not overriding it and, and, you know, screaming at us to do the thing that's actually going to help with weight loss. We can actually tune into what our body is telling us. And I don't, do you know Jess Lively? She has a podcast called The Lively Show. I do, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So then you know the way that she describes it, which I love because she calls body knowing intuition. Um, Megan Watterson, who I love, calls it soul voice. Um, people who are religious might call it like God voice inside of you. Um, mm-hmm. But to me, it's like the ego or the brain voice is like that fire hydrant in your ear, like spewing water at you and it's forceful and it's happening all the time and it feels a bit overwhelming sometimes and this body knowing or this soul voice or this intuition that we tap into in intuitive eating lives lower in our body it lives like in our gut i'm a gut person mm-hmm. um some people it's their heart center and it's like a well or like an, a, a a quiet deep pool of water and we actually have to get a little bit more quiet to get in touch with it and we have to dip into it so we have to actually ask for information (laughs) you know it's not just going to spew at us all day long right and so it involves actually quieting the brain because the brain is also always looking for problems that's like the brain's job right and again in our culture in the same way that we like hypervalue the physical body over the mental, emotional, spiritual self, we value the brain over other ways of knowing or other ways of getting information for ourselves. And so for me, this whole, it's so interesting because when I work with women on intuitive eating, the the byproduct or the accidental side effect of it is that they get better at 
making so many decisions in their life. They get better at, um, they just get more clear in their life because they have access to this, this deeper well of knowing that exists within themselves. Um, something that they would never have accessed maybe if it hadn't been for the food problem presenting itself. So it's sort of like this accidental byproduct, but yeah, it's just this, it's difficult to describe because for some people it's words. Like I tend to get words. Some people will get emotions, feelings. Some people get sort of images. Um, it kind of can present itself in lots of different ways. Um, but it tends to be hard to miss once you've accessed it. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah. Like, you know, I think that is so important, even on the journey that I was on, you know, understanding, you know, what my spirit was saying to me, right? you know, and, and connecting with that gave me the ability to to be able to, you know, um, put thoughts in my mind that I wanted to have Mm -hmm. versus the limiting beliefs and the patterns that had been on loop for so long. Absolutely. Me too. 100%. And and it's it's interesting now because I, I, I had focused all of this based around, you know, mental health and, and also, you know, I use it in my own coaching practice, but I had never thought about it with food. Mm. Until well, it's because now because it's generally not presented to us that that's a, an option, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's generally not presented to us that it's an option to just be okay with our body first of all, <laughs> or to work from a place of body acceptance yeah. and, and body neutrality, um, and it's generally not a well accepted like one of the first things that people argue when I talk about intuitive eating is like, well, how can you be healthy? Like, how can you do, eat the right things? Just like this this cultural belief that there's always somebody outside of ourselves that know better than we do Mm -hmm. always. And that it's preposterous to suggest that our human body might be that with a base level of nutritional knowledge, which most people have. I mean, I work with some of the most at risk youth. I'm going there this afternoon to like today, kids in the city that I'm going to work with today about around food and body image. And they know what the basics of nutrition are. They know what they should be eating and not eating. It's all about pulling away the barriers, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, definitely there are situations where people may need some nutritional information, but for the most part, I have yet to encounter people who don't know the the basics, right? Yeah. Like Like these women that I work with at this, at this, um, this shelter, like they don't need to know about goji berries, you know, like they just, that's not where they're at or Mm -hmm. acai or whatever. Like they need fundamentals and they need help removing all of the barriers. And a lot of it, believe it or not, no matter how bad it gets (laughs) in life, the cultural pressures around female bodies outweigh so many of the other struggles Mm -hmm. that these women are having. Like the pressure to make their body look a certain way and some of the addictive behaviors that women get into in order to try to fit it, you know, it's just, it's all consuming and overwhelming. So I think it's fair to say that it's just easy to overlook that, that we could do this with food. Yeah. Which is my passion really. Like my true passion in this work is helping women understand they have all these options when it comes to food in their body. And if they know all the options and they know all the potential collateral damage and side effects of engaging in a behavior, whether it's for coping or for fitting in or for whatever, then like you're an adult, 
you can do it. For me, I, I feel like the problem arises when they don't understand that there is the option to step out of the box mm-hmm. because the cultural story around weight and bodies and health is so myopic and rigid and unilateral, you know? And how do you think we're going to shift that? Like how, you know, you're talking about, you know, at-risk youth or people or, you know, just education. I remember, you know, learning about nutrition with the, you know, nutrition guide and, and how that, you know, constantly changes. And then of course you, you know, the introduction of like, after that to me, like, oh, losing weight. So then diet and do this. How do you think that's going to shift in our culture or is it going to? It will. It's just, it's going to be decades in the making. It already has been decades in the making and it's, it's starting to have a bit of a moment. The body, the body positive movement for all the criticism it gets is the origin of shifting this story. And that's why it's so important. And the, the basis of that movement is just that all bodies are deserving of respect and dignity and love, regardless mm-hmm. of their size. It's about yeah. understanding how badly treated bodies are in our culture, the further the, the further away they are from ideal, that this isn't just about vanity. It, it can be about life and death for some mm-hmm. individuals. And so shifting it involves teaching about respect of biodiversity. It involves being really critical of the current models that are in place. It involves highlighting the research that exists. It involves the individual work of like unearthing our own fat phobia that's been deeply ingrained and understanding that we all have it because we've Mm -hmm. grown up with it, like in this culture, not all cultures, because it's not a fact. (laughs) It's a culture, Mm -hmm. it's a societal construct, right? And so understanding that when you've grown up in this culture, you have fat phobia within you and it shows up in all different ways, shapes, and forms. So on an individual level, it's like, how do I recognize that in myself? How do I get deeply honest about why I'm engaging in diet behavior or extreme health behaviors and, and understanding the forces that are behind that? And it's not just about health, right? It's about so many other things, about understanding that not everyone in our culture can participate in those those practices and ideals. And so it's that like individual work. And then on a cultural level, it's about really working to shift things like the BMI system that are not helping with health overall. And so how can we start to look at human bodies differently? How can we become critical and start to become more aware of um, the research that exists on how we can be healthy without having to pursue weight loss? And again, I just want to be clear, it doesn't mean that bodies will never change, right? Like there are some people who could engage in health promoting behaviors and their body, they, they could lose weight. That's a possibility. But there's a difference between having all of your actions geared toward weight loss versus taking care of yourself and as a side effect or an outcome that you're not in control of, losing weight. Mm-hmm. And then when we understand biodiversity, we understand that if we put a thousand people on a food and exercise plan, that was good overall, like, and chill and not that extreme. Some people might lose weight, but just as many people will stay the same or gain weight on the same plan. And that weight, like I said earlier, is complex and it's an outcome and we're not in control of outcomes. We're only in control of our behaviors. So Mm -hmm. how do we shift the focus in our culture from weight loss as the ultimate determinant of worth and metric of success to the individual human experience of feeling good 
and being respected and accepted and all of the aspects that are involved in that, as well as the blood tests and the blood pressure and the blood sugar and whatever, like all of that being good, that being the marker of success, Mm -hmm. right? And fitting into a pair of jeans. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we can't forget that. Right. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Because that is like, you know, a lot of people are maybe even listening to this podcast are thinking about, oh, it's how I look. They're not maybe as worried about like my blood pressure yet. But yes, <laughs> when you get to, yeah. I mean, maybe I'm kind of getting to that that place, but some of the people would not be maybe listening to this. Um, but it, I think that it's important even for us to like to switch this mindset now. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And I think that even if um, blood pressure is not something that concerns you, I think very quickly when a paradigm shift is suggested, very quickly health becomes the way to justify all manner of negative controlling restrictive behaviors around food and punishing exercise, right? Mm-hmm. And so absolutely. even though it may not be the thing that people are really it's not really like the goal or where their focus is when it comes to managing their own bodies. When it comes to shifting how we think about bodies, it's the first thing that people want to throw out there. Right. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, mm-hmm. um, so yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and there's so much entangled in it, which I think is the whole reason why people come to work with you. Absolutely. And again, um, if we like boiled it down to the, like the most, We talked about a lot of stuff today. I know there's a lot of concepts in there, but the whole thing is that we just pursue health for health's sake. That's really at the bottom of it. And and Mm -hmm. we only do it in a way that's not going to sacrifice the mental, emotional, or physical well-being of the person that we're working Mm with. That's that's it. Yeah. One of the things I think probably the the biggest um, kind of mindset shift for me a few years back was when I realized kind of what I wanted, really wanted to do with my life and what it would require my body, my soul and my spirit to do. Mm-hmm. And the way I was currently living um, was not going to accommodate that. Mm-hmm. And and in fact, if anything, it was keeping me from it. So, and I didn't realize that because I was like, oh yeah, I'm doing everything right. I'm like taking all the right courses and I'm positioning myself in the right place and networking and blah, 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 all these things. Right. Mm -hmm. But what I, what I didn't realize was I had mindset beliefs around who I was. I had mindset beliefs around what I was capable of, what was possible for my life, you know, the relationships I could be in or wasn't going to be in, the way my body would look, the sustainability of my energy level long-term, all of these things. Mm-hmm. And I think for me to to realize, okay, in order for me to fulfill kind of this purpose that I feel like I have been called to do, it's going to require me to really take an in-depth look at how I'm actually treating myself. Like, what am I doing for me? Mm-hmm. How am I treating, um, like, how, do I give myself grace when I fail? Do I allow myself to, you know, have off days? Um, but I, do I also push myself? Do I also motivate myself? How am I internally motivated? And, and, and it was a big shift around, like, will I be able to do this long term with the body I have? Mm-hmm. 
if I'm not getting sleep, if I'm not, you know, putting food in it that helps me. Right. It makes me, but it, so it, this is kind of like just even pushed it further into that mode for me of not only like, okay, am I going to be able to do this and, and really accomplish the purpose that I have set out to do it? Am I also going to enjoy it? Yeah. Like, and and I think I, that those are yeah. all really good markers of success, right? Like, yeah. like, and can I do the job that I want to do? Um, do I feel energetic enough to like pursue my dreams? Can I keep up? And like, those are all incredible alternative markers of success. Mm-hmm. And am I enjoying it? Which is like mm-hmm. kind of the whole point of this ride. You know, you would think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I have to remind myself, like I love fun for for as much as like the type of personality I am. But I'm business. Like I, I I'm all business sometimes, and I have to remind myself, okay, like this is fun. Like enjoy it. Don't be so serious about it but enjoy it and enjoy, you know, your body and enjoy the food you eat and enjoy the company of people you're around and the people you get to encounter on the journey. And, and so I just love, I am so thankful for this conversation, Jillian. Um, it's been enlightening. It's been educational. Um, I, I, I can't thank you enough. I would love for people to get in contact with you and to hear more about what you do. So how can they do that? I, I live on the internet at www.foodfreedombodylove.com. Same with on Instagram, foodfreedombodylove.com. And I have a podcast. If you Google the Food Freedom Body Love podcast, I have... Um, yeah, I have a little podcast there, which is a little bit different from yours in that it's just mostly these series that are educational. So there's the first seven or eight episodes are just a body image masterclass, which is always an amazing place for people to start if they want to dig into this information uh, even more. Mm-hmm. I would like highly encourage you guys to check out Dr. Jillian and what she's doing. And Um, and even, you know, if you're, if you're considering, you know, kind of moving that direction, you know, work with her and, um, and, and kind of develop that part of yourself, um, in, in a way that would feel good as she, you know, she said, I think there's so much, I'm, I, I'm going to have to definitely listen back to this episode myself (laughs) and, and get a lot of this information out. But I just want to say thank you so much again. I hope our paths cross, um, another time and that, um, because it's just been so great to have you. Thank you so much. Thanks for all the great questions, super thoughtful. And it was just really fun to be here. Thank you. Maybe as you've been listening, you feel a bit like I do, feeling the need not only to make a change, but to make a lasting change, not necessarily in the way your body looks, but your relationship with your body. My eyes have been opened to the way we've been taught to think about our bodies and to the privilege and status that has been associated with looking a certain way. I'm committed to making a change in the way I perceive my body and move my body Honestly, I'm sick of the diet culture, the weight cycling in my own life. When I think about the little girl who had such a troubled relationship with food because she was worried she'd look too round, that her face was too full, it just makes me really sad. So re-listening to this conversation with Dr. Jillian 
was exactly what I needed to hear. And if you've been struggling with weight cycling or listening to your body, or you just want to have a better relationship with your body, I want to encourage you to reach out to Dr. Jillian. All of her contact information is located in the show notes over at thecouragecast.com. And a huge thank you to Dr. Jillian for her expertise and her knowledge. I loved the conversation just as much the second time around as I did the first time, but I didn't know how much I needed to hear it this time. Again, thanks for joining me this week. Next week, we'll have a brand new episode for you. So if you haven't already subscribed, we'd really appreciate if you do. And please leave us a rating and review. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. We're sending you so much love. Until next time, remember, you have everything you need to live bravely. If you like this episode of The Courage Gas, we'd love to hear from you. Leave us a rating and review, and while you're there, hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. Original music and production by Stephen Krilly.